Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to another edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast, an audio insight into what's going on here at the Leaders Performance Institute. My name is James Emmett. I'm the editorial director here at Leaders. As ever, for more information on how to become a member and get daily access to cutting-edge best practice and original research in the fields of leadership and culture, talent and recruitment, coaching and development, human performance, tech, data and analytics, visit leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. That's leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. And who knows, maybe one day we'll be meeting each other at one of the growing number of performance summits we host all over the world. On to today's guest. Alistair Campbell is a journalist, author, strategist, communications expert and sports fan. One of, if not the, architects of New Labour, Campbell is best known for his work as Director of Communications and Strategy and Downing Street Press Secretary for former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair. Needless to say, politics feature quite prominently in our conversation, but the prime focus was on his book, published in 2015, Winners and How They Succeed, which plots how sportsmen and managers excel, how entrepreneurs, how, how entrepreneurs thrive, and how a positive winning mindset is something we all, as individuals, can develop. Some questions covered. Are we living in a vacuum of political leadership? Is Donald Trump a winner or one of life's big losers? How do you make a crisis work for you? What's the difference between stress and pressure? How can you play to your reputation to ensure you win before you've even done anything? The book is a fantastic run through the techniques, principles, machinations and quirks of some of the most prominent figures in sport, politics and business, many of whom Campbell interviewed for the book. And we start with an explanation of the founding principle of the book and of what Campbell believes is essential for success in almost any field, defining and working to your OST, Objective, Strategy and Tactics. This is the, that is the one part of the book I would say that has really kind of gelled with people and has led to all these different organisations getting in touch saying, can you come and talk about this OST? Mm. It's very funny, I was in uh, Norway recently and I did a speech where I was talking about the book and I said, you know, uh, let me just tell you the three most important letters in the language are OST and the whole place fell about because I didn't realise that Ost is Norwegian for cheese. Okay. So, um, <laughs> that's not a good way of remembering it now, remember yeah. cheese, but no, it's just, to me it's very, very simple. It's whatever you're doing, what is the objective? To meet a, a big, bold objective, you have to have a very clear strategy and don't go tactical until you've got the strategy worked out. Mm-hmm. That's simple as that. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I do, I give lots of different examples of, of, of where... I've seen where we've operated that, say in politics, or where I've seen other people operate it in different walks of life, and then give examples of where people have adapted to it as well. So I talk about Steve Jobs and, and, and Apple, where his objective when he went back second time around wasn't to become the biggest, most famous company in world history ever, mm. with the biggest capital market valuation anywhere on the planet. It was survival, mm-hmm. because they were in deep trouble. And the strategy was simplification. Mm-hmm. And, but it was only when they got the strategy worked out they could then do the things that that meant. Mm-hmm. And um, then the tactics, sort of developing The tactics that, were... Taking away functions. Or exactly. Something. Saying that, you know, a, ta- or a, a tactic would be a slogan. A tactic would be a poster. A tactic mm-hmm. would be um, personnel change. And so I think it's... Um, 
Um, I, and I think once you, what, what I suspect your film guy is saying to you is that once you have it in your head as a simple framework for anything you do, so for example, you're coming along to talk to me today, your objective, do a good interview, your strategy, read the book. Uh, My tactics, ask the questions I've written. Yeah, and, and, and the, or the strategy might be formulated in, a, in, a, in a, an insight that you're, you can, you've thought of a way of asking questions that is different to what you think might have been done before. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I just think that makes life more interesting if you can have that, that perspective. And I do, partly I do do this to make life more interesting. And so, for example, I, mean, I do loads of different things and some of them are more interesting than others. Mm. And I might do something which actually on paper is going to be boring or a bit dull, to make it more interesting, I set myself this, in my, even I might, I might not do it on paper, I, I normally just do, scribble it down somewhere, but I might just have it in my head, right, my objective, my strategy, my tactics, these, and then I've got myself a framework mm -hmm. to kind of get through it. Mm -hmm. So it works, it works on all sorts of levels. Uh, I'm interested in the concept of um, being, a, being a leader, being a good leader, but specifically being perceived as a good leader, because I think that's, you know, you're, on, you're, you're halfway there as long as you're perceived as being a good leader. And there, another quote in the book, um, the famous uh, incident with Kennedy at the space station, yeah. uh, at where the, the janitor sort of asked what, what he does, uh, obviously um, helping to put a man on the moon. Yeah. Um, that obviously comes about from a clear communication of an objective and a strategy. Objective, man on the moon, yeah. strategy, NASA. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and do you think that the best political leadership maybe uh, comes about through effective communication of objectives and strategy, not necessarily tactics? Um, yeah, I think it has to be a part of it. Mm. Um, particularly in the modern age because we're so surrounded by noise all the time. So you look at somebody like Trump and, I mean, you know, objective to become president. Mm. Uh, strategy was a campaign of complete rupture, break all the norms, break all the rules. Um, it's amazing that it worked really, but it did, he won. Uh, his objective now, God knows, is very hard to work out. Mm. I don't think he has a strategy. Mm -hmm. I mean, as so far as he has a strategy, it appears to be, well, he's carrying on with rupture, I guess, he's breaking all the norms, and uh, but I think it's, you know, I mean, you have to look at him and you think, well, t his Twitter stuff, is that, is, that ta is that all tactics or is it a strategy? Is his strategy actually communication through Twitter? Do you think people give him far too much? If you read about Trump, you see people, or is he scared about what's going to happen and who's advising him and what's going mm. on? And, you know, and people suggest, oh, you know, he, he hammers home the same points over and over again. It's genius. You know, he does this mm. on, on Twitter. Mm. Are people just giving him way too much credit? I don't meet many people saying he's a genius. <laughs> no. uh, but you know, I think there is a big difference in, it's interesting, during the referendum campaign here, whenever I went to a different country during the build-up, virtually every, everybody met, I didn't meet a single person abroad who said to me, I think it'd be a great idea if you left the European Union. No. And likewise, I think Americans who've been traveling the world have not been meeting anybody who thought Trump was a good idea. Mm. But in those countries, that change has happened. Mm. So it may be, I mean, I did, a, I did an interview about Trump the other day and I got this really violent response from somebody who'd seen it in the States. And, you know, so to me, and I think to most of the people in my orbit, as it were, 
they look at Trump and just think the thing is a combination of joke, fear, nightmare. The whole thing is awful. Um, and I can't work out whether... I do think there is a strategy there. Mm. Uh, I'm beginning to worry it is... Uh, the objective is sort of a form of dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And the strategy is this absolute rupture. And the thing about... Um, I mean, you know, I know we talk about my book, but we should plug, I should plug another book. This Russian guy wrote a book about Putin called Nothing is True and Anything is Possible. And I think Trump is playing by the same playbook. Mm. If you were going to... Uh, clearly, had you been writing this book now, uh, Trump would feature. Um, he might not. He might not, actually, because if I look at... When I look at the people on the front cover, mm. I want to think... So just so the people who are listening, they're all named inside a, a gold number one. And when I look at them, I want, I want to like them. Mm. I, want, I don't, you know, winners and how they succeed, I want to respect the way that they've won. I don't respect the way that Donald Trump's won. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't put Boris Johnson on there. Mm. Now, you could argue that he's a winnie. I wouldn't put Nigel Farage on there. Mm-hmm. Now, that's partly my politics. Um, but I would put Margaret Thatcher on there, but I'd, I've, I've, the only dead person on the front is, is, uh, is Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when, since the election, I thought, well, should we re- we've just done a reprint of the hardback. Should I have taken Hillary Clinton's name off? Um, but I think in her own way, I'd still see Hillary as a winner because of what she's achieved mm-hmm. and how she's done that. But obviously, her career has ended with, well, at this stage of her career, certainly, has ended with a massive defeat, mm-hmm. even though she won the popular vote. So, no, I wouldn't... I'd write about Trump. If you were, into but I wouldn't. I wouldn't define. You wouldn't him. put him on the cover. No, and I wouldn't. At this, I wouldn't define him as a winner mm. because he's won the presidential election. But this is what I talked about earlier about this thing about enduring winning. Mm-hmm. So he now has to be a good president to be a winner. Mm-hmm. Winning the, the election is the start of it. Now, okay, he's won lots in his life, um, but I wouldn't define him as a winner in the same way as. I mean, I look at the business people on here. I think Richard Branson's a winner. I think he keeps redefining the way that he wins. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see Trump in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of. And I've sort of got a feeling, and again, this may be wishful thinking, I've got a feeling he'll end up life as an absolute loser. Yeah. <laughs> What's he, what was his big... Uh, the haters and the losers... Is that what you said? Yeah, that's what that's yeah. you went on Twitter and that haters and losers. Oh, well. um, slightly related, I, I had a question um, about leaders and, and leadership, and obviously the, the people that you write about in the book, it's clear that leadership comes in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Yes. Uh, there is no one-size-fits-all approach. Um, quite clearly, you can be a quiet leader, you can not fit any of the stereotypes or assumptions that we have about leadership, you can still be a very effective leader. Yeah. Possibly I already know the answer to this after what you said about Trump, but in your view, can someone be objectively a bad leader uh, by many different measures, but also be very, very successful? Yeah. Um, is that the answer you thought I was going to give? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, the other, the other alternative is, you know, does the end justify the means? Well, I, I mean, I say in the book, for example, that I think if you were to sort of look at all the people that we would define as being good leaders in the modern age, you'd probably say they have to have, you know, an extraordinary charisma mm. because we live in the television age and so forth. Yeah, I say in the book, and she is on the cover, that my, the leader on the world political stage I find the most impressive at the moment is Angela Merkel. Mm-hmm. Well, she's not classically charismatic. Mm. Um, she's quite dowdy looking. She's, 
most people outside Germany don't actually really know how she sounds and how she speaks because even though she's fluent, pretty fluent in English and in Russian, because she's the German Chancellor, she always speaks publicly in German. So we know her, most British people know her mainly through an interpreter, mm -hmm. insofar as they know her voice at all. And so I think, but I think she's a good leader. And also I would say that if I, the leaders that I've worked with and whether it's Tony Blair or you know, Bill Clinton at times and uh, very charismatic, but also very, very strong elements of control. Now, Angela Merkel, because of the political system, she's, always, she's only ever run a coalition government. Mm -hmm. uh, so she's had to do it in a different sort of way, just as David Cameron had to be a different sort of leader when he was leading a coalition to when he had a, briefly, mm -hmm. was prime minister with a majority of his own. Mm -hmm. We're here in the... He's, sorry, let me say, Cameron, I think, is an interesting example. Cameron is somebody I would say is, technically, yeah. looks like a good leader. But I don't think he is a good leader. Mm -hmm. Why not? Because he didn't. Because he's crap because, at strategy. Because of, because of the way it ended. Because he's crap at strategy. It ended because he's crap at strategy. Yeah. You know. Mm. Let's move on, uh, if we may. And um, we're not necessarily in crisis yet in UK politics. About well, maybe we are. Every other, you know, every other week we're probably in crisis. Um, but I, you touch on it in the book, the idea of um, using crisis, using mm. scandal. Um, towards a winning objective, I suppose. Could you talk generally about that? How do you make a scandal or a crisis work for you as a leader? Well, I mean, you'd rather not have them, but I think you've got to be careful. There's a difference between a crisis and a scandal. A scandal could become a crisis, but they don't often. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose you could argue that recently the scandal in Northern Ireland, the scandal over this environmental this cash for ash scheme, so-called, has led to the, the institutions being suspended, and that is potentially a crisis. And having these elections while the Article 50 thing is going on, it's, it's potentially really bad and really dangerous for the peace process, and certainly for the Northern Ireland economy. So that's an example of where a scandal has mm. led to a potential crisis. But, I mean, I say in the book that during 10 years working with Tony Blair, I, I, we only had five full-blown crises. Mm. Um, Iraq... Kosovo, 9-11, fuel protests and foot and mouth. They, were, they to me were full-blown crises with hundreds of problems, setbacks, difficulties. But what I, the, the, the point you're alluding to is I have, have this mantra, G-G-O-O-B, get good out of bad. And it's the old, the old cliche about never, wait, never let a good crisis go to waste. It's not that so much as if you've got in any situation that you're in, how can you review it, adapt to it, to put yourself into a better position. I mean, I tell the story about, you know, the, the, the election launch, 2001. So the day we launched the manifesto, we have Tony Blair getting attacked outside a hospital by a woman who says the, her partner's getting crap treatment, Jack Straw getting slow hand clapped by the police, and then John Prescott thumping somebody. That was on the launch day of our manifesto. Mm. Now, three bad blows, um, but you have to get up again the next day and say, right, well, how do we now do what we were trying to do yesterday but failed because of all that? Mm -hmm. First of all, you've got to deal with the situations, but then you've got to... And we, we actually, we, we, we had in, in our minds, right, we didn't get the manifesto over, we didn't, we lost that day, as it were, so therefore, we've basically got to say, we lost that day, we're doing it again. Mm -hmm. 
here we go again. This is the stuff you missed yesterday, or whatever it might it's be. The old sort of Sunday league, uh, but it's nil nil, lads. Half time. Sort of thing. <laughs> no, I think we were losing five nil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also the, the thing with um, with John Prescott, you know, it was like it's probably the only thing anybody can remember from that campaign, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. If you say to the public, if you say to a member of the public. Uh, what was Labour's slogan? What was the Tories slogan? No idea. Uh, Prescott got egg on him, and then uh, Prescott whacked that guy. Yeah. People remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, bringing it to a sporting context, uh, obviously crises—not necessarily super serious ones, relatively—but crises happen all the time in sport. You know, lose three games in a row, you're in a crisis. That sort of thing. Um, you see, that's the problem. It's not a crisis. It's not a real crisis, as you. Uh, as but, you it, but they treat it like it because the media tell them to. There are deeper crises, I would suggest, in sport where, you know, your fundamental culture and ethics Mm -hmm. are questioned or undermined. And I I, I wanted to get your take on um, British cycling. Obviously, you you hold up uh, in this um, book as um, a very innovative Mm -hmm. and um, successful organisation, as they are. Dave Brailsford has done uh, lots of fairly incredible things. Um, But British cycling is probably... uh, you'd reasonably describe it as being in crisis at the moment. They are um, under the cosh. I'd say they're under the cosh, but again, I don't describe it necessarily as a crisis. A crisis to me is an event or situation that poses virtually an existential threat. Mm -hmm. Now, you can have a crisis that leads to personnel changing, but I don't think... You see, I would say British cycling by which I define the sport of cycling in Britain, is in incredibly good state. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, ever be, if you get into any taxi in London at the moment, and all they do is complain about the fact there's all these millions of people riding bikes, mm-hmm. that's part of British cycling. I think that there's obviously what's happened with... with uh, look, there's a, uh, there's a culture, there's part of British culture that we love building, but we're seeing it now with David Beckham and his, his emails. We're seeing it, we saw it a little bit with Alistair Cook build him up, knock him down, and now that he's thrown in the towel in the captaincy, say how great he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with Dave Brailsford, there's something similar going on that people want to sort of knock him down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still think Dave Brailsford and British Cycling and, and Team Sky are absolute models of winning behaviours. And, th- and I think it's really important that the same people who are, uh, including in Parliament, the people who sort of wanted to be associated with the success of 2012, and now, because the mood has changed a bit, you take the prism through which you're looking when Team Sky bring, uh, when British Cycling are bringing in all these gold medals, and you you don't want to you forget that and say oh, it's all about bullying, it's all about intimidation. Mm. I mean, Dave was absolutely unapologetic, rightly in my view. The brief from UK Sport was to turn British Cycling into podium medal winning performers, and they did that absolutely ruthlessly. Mm-hmm. So. I think what's happened is that people want to look at it through this different prism and forget that the sort of changes he had to make to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So I, I continue to defend him. What would your advice be to him and to British Cycling to make the most of this, if it's not a crisis, then this situation that they find themselves in now? Deal with what people are perceived to be the negatives, but don't throw out the... You use the word innovative. Don't stop innovating. Don't stop being absolutely focused on the importance of winning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so deal with it. You have to deal with it. You know, if you get hauled up before a parliamentary committee, you've got to go, you've got to deal with it. 
I actually thought Dave did very well at that. Mm. Um, but I think it's, I do think there's something very odd in our culture. I'm not saying there aren't bad things in God and sport. And, you know, if David Walsh, the Sunday Times, is listening to this, he'd probably say, oh, this is the guy who defended Lance Armstrong. I did. Mm. And I obviously was wrong. Uh, I honestly thought Lance Armstrong was just a very, 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 very special human being. Um, no, I was wrong. He, he was a special human being, but he was also a cheat and a liar. Mm. Uh, I don't believe that Dave Rousey was a cheat and a liar. Um, and I think that what he's done with, with British cycling is, is, is one of the great sporting success stories of British history. I really do. Moving on again, you talk about the difference between stress and pressure mm-hmm. in the book. Uh, and how stress is bad, broadly speaking, pressure is good, or you can harness that. Yeah. How do you, it's a, I imagine it's a mindset thing uh, again. How, how do you turn stress into pressure? And how do you, do you harness pressure as a, a, a wind on your back? Um, I think by being conscious of the difference is, is important. I mean, sometimes you can't. Mm. Sometimes you can't. I get, I, I've had periods of my life when I've had really bad stress. Mm. Uh, I think pressure to me is something that you can you can impose upon yourself by thinking that you need it and by partly it's about the way that you prepare for something so for example I mean I talk in the book about when I was appearing before the Iraq inquiry you know it was very very high pressure very stressful live on television Every word, any word out of place gets picked on, added to which the conclusions are of really quite profound reputational significance, not just to me, but to the government that I work for and to Tony Blair. And <coughs> so it sort of matters. Now, I, when I got my date, because I'm self-employed now, I was able to do this, I basically threw everything out of the diary for two weeks. I did nothing. I did absolutely nothing but prepare. Mm-hmm. As I did that, now that preparation, it's a way of alleviating the pressure in a way because you know Benjamin Franklin uh, failed to prepare and you're preparing to fail, so you're relieving the pressure on yourself by getting yourself in a place where you're well prepared. But at the same time, the fact that you are doing it, and I and I welcome this, is is increasing the pressure, so that when you get to the point at which you're doing it, you really are feeling that pressure. Because the process makes you sort of obsess about it. And be, and be, no, because the, the time and dedication that you're putting into it is, is telling your mind the whole time, this really matters. Mm-hmm. And pressure to me is something that, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing... Uh, look, no disrespect, I would feel less pressure having a nice chat with you about my book than I would on the day that the Iraq inquiry came out and I was doing a live interview with the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would cite myself differently. Mm-hmm. So pressure, I think, is, is something that you can use to, to perform better, to behave better, to explain yourself better, to, to do whatever it is you're doing better. The pressure can be a good thing. When it tips over into stress, that is when you start to feel your hands going sweaty, you start to you start to feel your heart racing too fast. You start to feel that you're not quite in control of what it is that you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, str- and, and stress is also what happens when you can't sleep. Well, there's nothing worse than doing something that's difficult and important when you're absolutely exhausted. Mm-hmm. Now, you can do it, 
but sometimes that's when the adrenaline kicks in and keeps you going and it's and it's not a very effect I don't think adrenaline is is effective mm-hmm. in terms of when, when you're actually trying to stay in control adrenaline is something that it can be effective but you know I think it's better to be calm than to be you know have your veins gushing full of adrenaline mm-hmm. yeah so beta blockers rather than uh, <laughs> um, trust I want to talk about trust um, obviously a lot of um, successful leaders get that way because they build a circle of trust around them. People believe that they're excellent leaders and trust in them to do whatever it is that yeah. they said they're going to do. It seems to me that there are some institute. You, you know, trust is a big issue in politics. Um, do we trust politicians? Uh, how do politicians gain our trust? Uh, it seems to me that institutions are now. You know, a few years ago after the recession, people in their masses lost trust in banks, you know, in the banking industry rather than with individuals. Seems now, especially in America, we have lost trust as a, as a, 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 pop, a populace in the media. There is no more trust in the media. If we take that specific example, what would your advice be to upstanding media organisations to regain public trust? I don't think that. I, I think it's interesting you say that. I think what's going on with the American media, in particular, is that um, part of Trump's strategy is to delegitimise all sources of power and information other than himself. So his strategy slash tactic, mm. bit of both, is to is to make people think that they can't trust the media. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think that. I mean, I, I, how he can turn on CNN and just say that they're all liars is beyond me. Mm-hmm. So I think they have to stand up for themselves. They cannot allow this to become normalised. Uh, now, it's a risk because it makes them players as well as spectators, but that's what he's done. He's created, he's created a completely different framework in which the media debate takes place. It'd be very interesting how it all pans out because, you know, satire, I think, is going to have a very big part, a big place in this. Well, comedy is always good in uh, times of... Uh, yeah, but sometimes it's, it's like, you know, it, it takes you away from the main picture, but I think it is going to be important. But the thing is that I think, you know, where... We're in a completely different game now, you know, where he... He's done one today where he says that the Democrats blocking these cabinet appointments is ridiculous. By now, Clinton and Obama and Bush had all had their cabinets in place, and it's not true. Now... How, how I think it's again a deliberate strategy on his part to get us all to the point where we say, oh God, you can't keep sort of saying it's not true, you can't keep calling him out, but actually we do have to keep calling him out. Mm. So I think the media has got to be very, very alert. And I mentioned the thing about Russia, that's, you know, it was one of the most extraordinary things. You know, I don't know if you watched his uh, interview with Fox News during the Super Bowl coverage. He, so, you know, massive viewing figures, he decides to do an interview with Fox during the Super Bowl. And Bill O'Reilly is, you know, almost as right-wing as Trump's people, uh, if not more. Is this and, a Putin killer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he said Putin's a killer. And uh, now, it must be the first president in history who has put America and Russia on the same moral parallel. Mm. Uh, where he said, what, do you think we don't do bad stuff? Um, now, I think part of what's driving this whole thing about the media, you've got a situation there today where a journalist has been 
don't know if he's died yet, but he's clearly seriously ill. His wife claims that a bit like Litvinenko, he's been po- he's been a big critic of Putin's, he's been poisoned. I don't know the truth. Mm. None of us do. Mm-hmm. But uh, Putin actually said, uh, Trump actually said, there's no evidence that he's been killing people that he shouldn't be. And uh, he's not interested in evidence. Mm. He's interested in what you know anything that sort of confirms what he already thinks. But 20 years ago, an American, for an American president to say, we're no better than the Russians. No. Or to say, I don't care if Putin's involved, we've been interfering in our election. Incredible. Yeah. It's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. Um, here's a jump. Uh, Jose Mourinho. Yeah. Um, we talked earlier about um, OST, um, and you mentioned that Mourinho has a slightly different idea mm-hmm. of strategy and tactics. Could you... First of all, could you explain uh, where the difference is? Um, And do you think as a result, strategy and tactics are kind of a fungible concept almost? Well, what was interesting, and and, I mean, the way the book works out, you know, is I talk about this holy trinity of strategy, leadership and teamship, and I write about it in general with all these different examples, then I have one big profile on each, so Anna Winter on leadership, and, and Mourinho is my guy on strategy. And part of the reason for that, other than the fact that it was a really good interview that I enjoyed doing, but it's also that he, he was the one really who challenged my analysis of what strategy is. I've got this OST formula, as you know, what's the objective, then do the strategy, and then do the tactics. And he said, in his mind, in his world, there's no difference between strategy and tactics, they're just words. And we, we argued about it for a really long, you know, quite... A, and, I, and I guess what I was trying to do was to was to make his, what he was saying about it, fit my OST. So, objective, win the match, and win enough matches to win a title or win a trophy. His strategy, he says that for every game he builds what he calls a tactical model, and it may have 20 elements to it. And so I said, well, what's a tactic? What, give me an element of that. What's an element? He says, well, okay, uh, the goalkeeper takes the ball from a from a corner. Uh, does he does he move the ball quickly or slowly? Does he go right? Does he go left? Does he go short? Does he go long? I want to know. I want him to know what I want him to do when that happens, and I want all the other players to know what he's going to do. So that's that's a tactic. Mm-hmm. When Fabregas has the ball and he plays it. Side, slightly forward left the players he's playing it to that player on the, on the left let's say it's I don't know Hazard what is the player over here meant to do that's a tactic mm-hmm. and he says so I, I have this tactical model and I would have a different tactical model for Liverpool away than I would for Hull at home and so I said well that's your strategy for that game I said, so what's a tactic? He said, a tactic to him is making a change when the tactical model isn't working. Mm-hmm. So that might be... It's having a flexible strategy is your tactic. Or I think yeah, something like yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. So it might be a substitution. Mm-hmm. It might be that he goes from uh, pressing very, very high to pulling back a bit. It might be that he tells somebody else to take a corner or a free kick so I guess it was it was just interesting to me and but it's funny watching him since and, it, and it's 
it's really interesting having talked to him because when, when Chelsea played at, I'm a Burnley fan, and when Chelsea played at Burnley, it wasn't long after I did the interview, mm. and we took the lead. Mm. And then they had this amazing sort of 15 minutes of sort of purple patch. They were incredible to watch. That was the one with Fabregas's first. Yeah. It's amazing. And, 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 and Schurler scored that really fantastic goal as well. Um, and so the game was over. And then there was this, it was literally like two minutes to go. And it was either Terry or Cahill, I think it was Cahill, did a sideways pass at the back. And Mourinho was stamping his feet and shouting and did it. And I talked to Michael Emanalo, the technical director afterwards, sporting director, and I said, God, it's incredible watching Jose. You know, 89th minute, you're winning, you know, you, the game's over, we've given up. Mm-hmm. And he's going mad, and he said, oh, yeah, he's always like, always wants more, always wants more. Mm-hmm. And, but what it was was that he'd obviously, one of his tactical models was never pass sideways, mm-hmm. I imagine. Mm-hmm. At the point that you spoke to him and wrote, wrote it up in the book, um, Jose had had nothing but success in his career. Obviously, um, the following year he had quite significant dip yeah. at Chelsea. Um, do you think the way he was doing things changed? Do you think his leadership style just got tired? I don't know. I really don't know. It's, it's been really interesting to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in fact, I, if I, I have interviewed him again since when he was uh, I interviewed him for GQ. Um, and I noticed a different mood. Mm. And I do, I, I mean, I don't know what's going on at Manchester United, but I mean, he's obviously turning things around pretty well now. But he does seem to have lost a little bit of that kind of whatever it was that got people going. He's, he seems quite quite down and quite doer and quite, you know, and he's always had that yeah. element. But um, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, but I mean, I said in the book, I, I think he'll be, I'm pretty sure he'll, He'll win again, for mm-hmm. sure. Two more questions. I'm aware that we've gone on for some time. Um, you enjoyed speaking to Jose Mourinho. You, you interviewed most of the people on the, uh, on the front cover there. How did you go about doing that? Did you decide that you had some things about leadership and winning that you wanted to cover and then you fit people that you'd like to speak to about those specific areas? Yeah. Or did you have a list of uh, people that you would like to meet? And, bit uh, of both, a bit yeah. of both. What, what actually happened was, I mean, I wrote the book with my son mm. and we planned it. We were on holiday in Scotland over Christmas, the, year, the, the, the Christmas before I wrote it. And we basically just mapped it out. So the structure of the book, um, you know, oh, I've signed it. The structure of the book, strategy, leadership, teamship, mindset, extreme mind, power of visualisation, boldness, innovation, data, crisis management, resilience. These were all... In place before you... We mapped them out. <laughs> so then, a lot of it was luck, to be honest. I mean, for example, you know, Floyd Mayweather was a total fluke. Mm. I was actually in New York to interview Anna Winter for the book. Mm. Uh, and I thought I was going to interview Anna Winter for this sectional innovation. I ended up putting her in as my profile on leadership. Anyway, because I was paying my own way and what have you, I, I did a bit of sort of digging around to get a couple of speaking gigs while I was there. One of them was a sport, a conference on sport and social media. Mm-hmm. And I did a talk, and at the end of this talk, this woman stood up and she asked me one of these questions that keeps me awake at night. She basically said... She said, I've never heard anybody talk about politics and power like you do, and I can't understand why you gave it up. 
to mm. sort of toot around the world just talking at conferences like this. And of course, that's the sort of thing that I think about a lot. Mm. And I couldn't sleep. Mm. I saw her the next morning at the conference. And I said, why did you ask me that question? She said, well, it's just that I'm working for somebody who's got a real full-on existence. And I'm worried what's going to happen to him after he gives it up. I says, who's that? He says, he's Floyd Mayweather. That's how I got the interview with Floyd Mayweather. Wonderful. Uh, so that was a fluke. Yeah. Now, Mayweather was on my original list, but I never, I didn't have a clue how to get him. Yeah. Um, and then other things, it was like, you know, for example, my team player, Eddie Rama, and most people never heard of Eddie Rama, he's the Prime Minister of Albania. Yeah. I work, I've done some work with him, but the reason I wanted to write about him is the only world leader who's played international sport. Yeah. He's a basketball player. And so I interviewed him about what he took from sport and brought into politics. Um, Things like visualisation, it's one of the best days of my life. I played in this charity football match with Maradona mm-hmm. um, and I had a, an hour just me and him training and talking about stuff and so, so that, some of that, it was that, luck. Didn't you say you write about that or you talk about that I talk about day? it every single day, I've just done my day today. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Tick that <laughs> I do it every single day. Yeah. Yesterday I did it with Ben Shepherd on the sofa of GMTV because he was in the same game but I find somebody to mention it to every day. Yeah. Um, and then other stuff was like, you know, Australia, for example, I, I, because the, my first book, The Blair Years, did well in Australia. And so I, I, I emailed the publisher, the Penguin Random House person in Australia, just to say, by the way, I'm writing a book about winning. Um, I'm, you know, I've already made contact with Shane Warne. Um, there's a couple of other Aussies that I've already sort of made contact with. But if there's anybody you think I should get in touch with, I'd be really, really grateful. She sent me a list back. So Lee Matthews, Aussie Rules, and I got a hold of him. But actually, my favourite interview in the whole book is, is, a, is an Australian surfer called Lane Beachley, mm-hmm. who have made my profile of resilience. Mm-hmm. And so I'd never heard of her, right? But the woman in uh, Alison in, in, in Australia said, oh, if you want to talk about winning, you want a resilient mindset, you've got to get a hold of Lane Beachley. Mm-hmm. So she put me in touch, got in touch with her, and it's my favourite interview in the whole book. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she's just such an amazing story. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of both, to be honest. It was a bit of both. Ben Ainsley, um, he was he was on my list right from the word go. Dave Brailsford I already knew. Clive Woodward I already knew. Um, Modi I was interested in, the Indian Prime Minister, mm-hmm. and, and his campaign. I didn't get to talk to him, but I met all his campaign team and I did a piece, big piece on the campaign and mm-hmm. I put that together. So, yeah, it's... Uh, you mentioned Eddie Rama there, yeah. uh, Albanian uh, Prime Minister, yeah. who, as you say, played basketball. Um, something that he mentioned uh, to you um, was the team, the, the rival team, I, think, I can't remember what they were called, um, yeah. but his team were very good, um, but they never ever beat Beats the top his, team, his yeah. rival team. And, yeah. and you're talking a little bit about reputation mm. and whatever it was about them. Uh, half the job was done before yeah. the game had even tipped off. Yeah. How do you? And reputation, I think, is really important in leadership Absolutely. and winning, in you know, in everyday life, really. How do you harness reputation, good or bad, and make it work for you? In fact, I've spoken to Sean Dyche about this, and he said in the Burnley match in the uh, Championship year a couple of years ago. Um, he got into a really good groove of making the reputation that Burnley had really work for them mm. and work as a motivational tool because played in a certain way, everyone knew it was, you know, the teams mm. would say, well, we know how Burnley are going to play, they're going to do this, that and the other. Mm. And Deitch was able to use that as a motivational 
thing for his team. Like, well, yes, we are going to do that. Mm. They were they're expecting us to do that. We, you know, they expect us to play hard, do this, mm. do that. Let's do it, mm. and it worked. I think reputation is the greatest currency of all, mm. and you know, people. It's hard to define sometimes. You, know, you look at somebody like Rupert Murdoch, and you think, right, well, he's, you know, he's still very wealthy, quite powerful and influential, and what have you, but. I, when I'm doing conferences on reputational management, and if I ask people for a show of hands on whether it has a good reputation or bad reputation, it's, it's often 100% bad. Mm. Um, so he's, now it doesn't mean he's not still successful at what he does, but the reputation bit, <coughs> so you mentioned the banks earlier. When the, when the crash happened, the banks, they had a lot of political capital in the, ba- in the bank, in the reputational bank, if you like, they'll have a lot less the next time. Mm-hmm. And so maybe more of them will have to go to the wall and fail. Don't know. It depends on, you know, governments will be much more wary about bailing them out. Um, and I find with, you know, in politics, you you, uh, you 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 run out of road sometimes. You just the re- your reputation can carry you so far. But you know, a government that has just sometimes can have too many scandals. I think that's what, in a way, it's what happened to John Major part of it, just scandal after scandal after scandal. In their own ways, I mean, most of them, most people would have forgotten by now. Mm. Um, but I think, I think, I think, harness, being aware of your reputation, but that thing Eddie Rama talked about, it's like, you know, anybody who steps into the ring with Floyd Mayweather, knowing that he's never lost, that, that's an advantage to Floyd Mayweather, surely. Mm-hmm. Um, now, equally, he's got a reputation for the whole money thing and the rest of it. Now, some people like it, some people hate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the British cycling thing, marginal gains. Marg- it's marginal yeah. gains hammered home all the time, even if it ultimately And also, and, and, and that has an impact upon, you know, I can remember, I've been to the Tour de France quite a lot, and I can remember when they first turned up in the, this sort of, you know, the biggest, the darkest, the best team bus. Mm-hmm. And you can see these other people and some of the other teams, they've all got them now, mm-hmm. but you can see some of the other teams just feeling inferior. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the big, they were the, the big dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think reputation is fundamental. I think it's really important. It's like this thing going on with David Becker at the moment, uh, the packed emails and all that. And okay, some of the papers are trying to kill, kill him with it, but he's got so much reputational currency in the bank. Mm-hmm. So he'll be fine. Mm-hmm. He'll be fine. And do you think, on a personal level, if if you're a leader and thinking about your personal reputation, obviously it's important to understand what that reputation is first of all. Do you think that you get the most gains from uh, hammering home that reputation, playing up to that reputation? Reputation is always sort of, I think, a, a magnified version of of what you are, anyway. Or do you sort of get gains from confounding expectations about yourself maybe that's a good question that's a very good question you see, if you have a reputation as being fearsome potentially and then yeah you see I, I have a reputation of being I mean even the people who hate me sort of saying you know, you know he, he was pretty effective what he did so that's good but I also have a reputation for having a terrible temper mm-hmm. which actually isn't true I sometimes have a terrible temper but it's not I'm not really Malcolm Tucker yeah, but, but I think that TV program that has done quite a lot for your yeah, reputation. Yeah, absolutely. So when you say you play to it, I play. I sometimes play to it. I, you'd be amazed how many people want to do a talk 
will come up and say things like... You didn't, you didn't swear once? Or yeah, you, didn't, or, or, you know, I had no idea that you, 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 you often speak very softly, which I do, I've got, actually got quite a quiet voice. Um, and, or they think I'm more sympathetic, mm. whatever. Now, am I doing that deliberately or I'm just being me? I don't know. I think there's a bit of both going on there. Whereas other times, maybe on television in particular, I will, if somebody really goes for me, I will get up and go really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess I'm playing to it there. But I'm also, I'm, I feel I'm being true to myself in doing that. But I think with some people, I think, I think, I do, I, I, I sometimes see people in sport and I think they're, you know, I used to say, but you just be careful, don't inhale the propaganda too much. Once you inhale your own propaganda and you start, um, you know, it's like, I'm not going to say who they are, but there's a few football managers who sort of, they do talk as though they've reinvented football. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it just sort of, that's because they, they keep being written up as being, I think what's great about Sean, I saw him at the weekend actually, and he and I talked to Sean a lot, he's a great bloke. But what's interesting about him, I think there's a total authenticity to his reputation. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no, there's no, he hasn't planned it. It doesn't mean he doesn't think about what he says and think about what he does. He does, he thinks about it a lot. But, it, but it's, it's, it's authentically him. I think his reputation is, certainly his reputation in the media is a little bit unfair. You know, he's, he's, yeah. he's viewed as rough and ready and somebody yeah. who shouts and swears on the touchline. Yeah. But actually, he's incredibly thoughtful. He's very thoughtful. Yeah. <clears throat> but he's also, I mean, I, I, you know, he's somebody who, when it's, you know, at the moment, he's the highest ranking English manager in the league. Give him the England job. No, not yet. Wait till we won the Champions League. Mm. Um, but it's always Eddie Howe who gets written up as the... Now, Eddie Howe didn't do it at Burnley. You know, he, he, and uh, you know, I, I always think that there's Pep Guardiola and Conte and what have you. Okay, they're very, very good at what they do. Could they keep Burnley up? Mm. <laughs> looks mm. sure. Mm. Sean, Sean looks like he's going to do it. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, no, he's, he's he's I think he's great. And the, the, well, that, it's an interesting thing that you bring up there because I think maybe it's happening to Pep Guardiola a bit. You know, he is struggling more than he's ever struggled in mm. his career. Because he's at a very big, powerful club with lots of money, but mm. he is not at definitively the best, richest club in, no. in the league, as he has been. And also, you know, when he was... Look, he was a fantastic footballer, and, and the football they played under when he was manager at Barcelona was, was, was fantastic. But he's only ever really known success, and he's only ever known the top, top, top. Mm. Whereas, you know, and I think it would be hard, I think it would be hard for something like him to... To get because what Sean does, he, he gets the look what he did with Joey Barton. Mm. How many managers have failed to get the best out of Joey Barton? Joey Barton was brilliant for us, and still is. Mm-hmm. And what he's what Sean seems to be able to do is to get the best out of the individuals and build them as a team. Now that's to me what football management is about. Mm-hmm. So he's very very good at it. It's a nice positive note to end. Alistair Campbell, thank you very thank much. You, thank you. Cheers.